0: But for this morning, if you wouldn't mind, open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1. And I want to travel back with you for the few minutes that we have together this morning to the Colorado Springs of the ancient Greek world, Philippi. Philippi was founded by a great military general of the day. And then if you lived back in that world of that day, and you were, say, a Roman soldier, and you had wife and kids, the place to go when you retired from your military duty, when you no longer wanted to be in service, and when you could retire, was Philippi, because they offered free taxes. You had no taxes, in other words. So whatever you earned in Philippi, you not only got your pension, but then you didn't have to pay any tax on it. So that way they populated Philippi. It's like Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs has Air Force Base, it has two Army bases, it even has a Naval facility, which I still don't understand out in the middle of the mountains, but there it is. And it's very much a military city. Uh, so kind of like Philippi here, which was a, is a lovely place. If you've been there, if not, probably most of you have not. Uh, it's a lovely place, agricultural. The river runs through it. There's a large egg-shaped hill and all kinds of interesting things around. It's kind of though in the backwoods a little bit of Greece. It's really not Like on the main thoroughfare, you're kind of off the main thoroughfare a bit. But anyways, because of the nature of the city, the Apostle Paul went there, took some men with him, and they preached the gospel to some ladies. The Lord opened their hearts. You might remember the story of Lydia. And through that began a church in the city of Philippi. And now 12 years later, Paul writes them this letter. Join me in verse 1. Paul and Timothy... Slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, it could fairly be said that there has... Never been a man so moved for sacrifice for God as Paul, the man who writes this letter. What is it that drove him so to be this way? It was an enormous sense of obligation that he had. In his former life, when he went by the name Saul, prior to becoming a Christian, here is a man who did everything he could to try to hurt wound, and in certain cases, even kill Christians. Hey, if you're a fast Bible turner, you can go back to Acts 9. Otherwise, just give me an ear. Acts 9, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, (coughs) excuse me, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting me, whom you are persecuting. Follow the logic, then, go back to Philippians, follow the logic. When Christ's people on earth are persecuted, Christ himself in heaven is in some sense persecuted. Because he said, why are you persecuting me when he was persecuting Christians on earth? That's what Jesus said. So if Christ can refer to his own people as himself, <coughs> then can it be wrong for Paul to regard them with the same love and zeal that he has for Christ himself. This is Paul the Apostle, who loves the Christians in Philippi as he loves his Savior, for they are, by Christ's cross and resurrection, inseparable, one and the same. And that leads us then into the first part of the book of Philippians, in which I'm going to just give you a metaphor to carry through the message. Three views from Paul's prison cell in Rome, which is where he's at as he writes this, all the way across the continent over to the nation of Greece, all the way into the city of Philippi, where the believers are. And we're going to look at three different views, and here they are. They are universality, ecclesiastically, and locally. Okay, first, Paul sees the Christians in Philippi universally. Join me back in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants or slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Did you see it or did you miss it? He says there, all the saints. But he doesn't know all the saints. You see, he hasn't been there for 12 years. So most of the Christians who are in Philippi receiving this letter have no personal relationship with the individual writing it. He's not writing to people that he actually knows. He doesn't know their names. He doesn't know their characters, their personalities, their funny nuances, their weird particularities. He doesn't know most of the people there. So he has none of this great personal relationship that he had with the few people that came to Christ while he was among them. He probably only knows a minority of the people in the city then who are Christians, and most of them don't know about him, although all of them have heard a lot about him. So Paul did not write the letter of Philippi because he knew the people, the Christians in Philippi. He had bigger reasons for caring for all of them. And it wasn't based on him having a relationship with them. Or it wasn't a matter of who likes who. Do you like me, so I talk to you? And if you don't like me, then I don't talk to you. It wasn't based on any of those things. It's rather universal. It was based on who these people are due to their saving relationship to Christ. Go back to verse 1 again. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's the basis upon, then, Paul addresses these people and why he loves them. That word, saints does not have to do with a special class of people who are to be prayed to, who are to be asked for intercession, and whose statues are to be stuck on your dashboard. No. This refers rather to every single person who is a Christian in Philippi. Do you see it? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Pretty logical. A saint is a person who has been made holy by God. It doesn't mean that everything in their character is holy and pure. It doesn't mean that they are less sinful, necessarily, even than all the people around them. It does mean, though, that God has done something for them that he has not done for others. And in this case, what he has done is he has purchased them for himself through the atoning death and resurrection of his own son. Therefore, he regards them and declares them as holy. We're looking at a a verse... Few nights ago, in a kind of a little home study that I'm a part of, and we were looking at this idea it's not just holy, but it's without blame. This amazing status that is granted upon all of the saints, every single one who places faith in Christ for salvation. This amazing reality being made holy for all who have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. And notice here, if you again, please look at verse one momentarily. They are all universally in Christ Jesus. And therefore, they are as precious to God as his own son is. They can never be separated away from God. He would have to disown the work of his son on the cross and in his resurrection for that to be true. He'll never do that. And therefore, they are simultaneously then precious to God even as his own son is. This declaring of people that he does not even know he doesn't know their character, but he declares them as saints is simply Paul's manifest way of writing to Christians. Romans chapter one, verse seven, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, first corinthians one two Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colosse. In other words, when Paul describes himself as Christ's own slave to the Philippian Christians, he's simply saying there that he is a slave to all of them, not some of them. He doesn't weigh them based on their opinions and predilections in secondary matters to all the saints who are in Philippi. This is the apostolic heart. This is the way he relates everyone upon whom Christ has had mercy upon. He is the slave of that person, universal in Philippi. And I believe his reasoning goes something like this. If my Lord, who loved you enough to die on a cross for you and rescue you out of your sin and out of eternal death and has sent his Holy Spirit into your heart, thus binding you to himself forever, and therefore binding you to everyone else whom he has saved forever, then therefore I must love you too. I personally find this universalism, this zeal for all of God's people in every place, internally thrilling, worthy of apostolic emulation, emulation of this apostle. It's just hard to live out. In some of the meetings when we were in Colorado, back in October, we were going through this funny little interview phase. They had us going to different places, and there we would have some food, and then we would have a time of discussion. They called it drill. And you know, I'd be sitting there, and my wife, right, Dina, right on my side, and we'd be answering all kinds of questions. In several of the groups, I explained to the people that my love for Christ is proven by how I treat them, each and every Christian. If I love the one who has loved you, then I must love you as he loves you. I am called by Christ's own love for me to love you, therefore, completely and perfectly, and, if necessary, to die for you, O Christian, even as he died for you. Several days later, we were home in Connecticut, and I was speaking somewhat curtly to Dina, maybe even a little rudely. And she asked me, do you remember when you told the people of Colorado Springs that the way you treated them was the way you treated Christ? She had my full attention. And she continued, and she said, does that count for me as well? Bless God for Christian spouses. You know? And I told Dina, yeah, I, I The way I treat you is indeed reflective of the way I treat Christ, and when I treat you rudely, I'm treating Christ rudely. Right? When it says here in verse 1, all the saints, that means no schisms, either outside the local church or inside the local church. It means having no favorites in the church, where you say, I will love this one, but that one I won't talk to. I'm angry with them, and it's okay. It it means loving, in this case of Philippi, every single blessed Christian in Philippi. And, of course, even breaking it down to the reality of if you're, like me, married to a Christian spouse, loving her as well. Listen, this is no side point. I want you to see this very clearly. If you would, drop your eyes down to verse 3. Hear the heartbeat of the apostle. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Drop your eyes to verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Catching the apostolic heart for Christians? Amazing universality this is. So again, I would just ask you, do you have favorites in the body of Christ? Jesus doesn't. Why do you? Charles Spurgeon, making some comments on Mary and Martha, said this. I think it's rather endearing. He said, We must not expect all believers in Christ to be exactly like one another. We must not set down others as having no grace because their experience does not entirely tally with our own. He went on, The sheep in the Lord's flock have each their own peculiarities, do they not? The flowers, he goes and says, in the Lord's garden are not all precisely alike. All true Christians agree in the principal things of religion. All feel their sins. All trust in Christ. All repent. All are led by one spirit. All are holy. But in minor matters, they differ widely. Let not one despise another on this account. There will be Marthas and there will be Marys in the church until the Lord comes again. So the first view from Paul's jail cell is universality. All the saints. And he means it. All the saints. The second view from his jail cell in Philippi, I'm going to use the word ecclesiastical. He sees them ecclesiastically. Or to put it another way, as saints, plural, who worship together in the same church, the same local church. me back in verse 1, where he finishes off the verse by saying, including the overseers and deacons. Hey, that's church language, guys. Overseers and deacons. That's the only two offices in the local church that are given in Scripture. Overseers there refers to a plurality of spiritually qualified men who serve the church in a number of ways. That's overseers. The New King James, if you have that with you this morning, has the word bishops, in which case I would suggest the words in verse 1 of bishops and rooks instead of bishops and deacons. It kind of seems like it would fit. But bishops, you know, those are the guys who wear those pointed miter hats and everybody's accountable and answerable to them, especially all the priests underneath them and the pastors underneath them. So I think that translation takes us astray a little bit. This is simply meant to be those who oversee the church governmentally, and if they are capable of handling counseling and and soul issues, I don't think that all overseers, who are also equivalent with the term elders and pastors, I don't think all overseers are omni-capable even in the letter of Philippi, there's a chapter four, there's a problem with some ladies in the church, and the overseers are not being called in to fix it, which kind of seems rather simple to us. That's what they should do, but no, Paul has to send somebody to fix the church. I think what is often neglected is that overseers serve the church institutionally. For instance, it's our responsibility to see that you are all able to partake of the Lord's own institution of his supper, the Lord's table. In fact, even the words that are given in the Lord's table, you know, take and drink and take and eat, are what's called words of institution because they were instituted by Jesus Christ. The only way we can do that is when we gather together for worship rightly on the Lord's day and when we all partake of those things together. So the overseers are responsible for so many areas of governing the church as an institution. We are responsible to protect the flock from schism and heresy. And then lastly, in verse 1, you have the word deacons. Unlike the overseers, they're never ever seen as a board in the New Testament. Rather, these are qualified and recognized servants, dependable people, chaste in language and manners, and also... Really, just able to serve, and I believe both men and women is what the New Testament teaches. I don't know where you guys stand on that. <clears throat> now, if you want to read this kind of just right, it will give you a smile. If you want to read verse one just right, it, it almost sounds like what Paul is saying is that the overseers and the deacons are not even Christians. Really? You want to see it? it it's pretty funny. Listen to how this sounds. Let me read verse 1 this way in the middle. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, and oh yeah, also uh, the overseers and deacons. As if the first part is written to the Christians, and then the second part is written to the non-Christians. Isn't it funny to look at it that way? What a church that would be. Everybody in it is a Christian, and except for the people who are in oversight and deaconhood. Wouldn't that be funny? So what's going on here by the very fact that Paul mentions these people here, overseers and deacons, never mentions them again in the letter. What's going on here? Why would he mention that? Why would he use this ecclesiastical language going on here? Well, it's just letting you know that when Paul writes to the Philippian believers, all the saints in Christ Jesus, he's writing to them ecclesiastically. He's writing to them as one church, all of whom are under the same Leadership group, the overseers, and, and then the qualified servants, the deacons. So, the view from Paul's prison cell is when he writes to these believers, he doesn't write to them like, okay, to you, and 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 to you. No, he writes to you collectively as a church. He writes to you ecclesiastically. He wants them all up front, because he never mentions this again, right up front, to know that he's writing to you guys as a church, as a church, which is good for us because we tend to think of our Christian lives kind of independently, me and my Jesus, and not so much us. You know, even one of the songs we just sang by Townen and Getty, instead of saying, instead of the plural pronouns like us and we, it was all first-person pronouns like me and my, as if God died for just me and my, but not us, whereas the apostolic words are almost always us and ours. So what's going on here? Obviously something different, obviously something that's, uh, that's not the same way that we do Christianity. <clears throat> what's going on here? Well, listen to the words of Walter Hansen in his commentary on the book of Philippians. He writes this as he's introducing, "'Woven together inseparably "'with the theme of the gospel of Christ "'is the theme of the community in Christ.'" The phrase in Christ has a dominating role in Philippians, occurring in various forms 21 times. And although this phrase has a range of meanings and does not always refer to corporate union in Christ, the primary focus of the phrase in Philippians is all the saints. When Paul addresses his letter to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus or all God's saints, He is not simply addressing them as individual Christians. He is recognizing their corporate union with one another in their union with Christ. Did you get that? Great. It took me about ten times to read it before I did. He's really saying here that the way that this phraseology is structured here is not merely that you have union with Christ, that you are intimately related with Christ, but that you have intimate union with each other, whoever is a believer. The Holy Spirit is not only in you and you and you and you, but the Holy Spirit is among you and between you, constantly working in you to get you to love each other, to get you to humble yourself with each other, to get you to walk a walk of humility. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church. What he's really saying here is that just as you have union with Christ, you, beloved, listen, have union with one another. It's an astounding reality. The Holy Spirit doesn't merely indwell you individually. The Holy Spirit indwells you corporately. Just as, therefore, you are a church. You have an ecclesiastical union with Christ. Oh, so this explains why the phrase Christ Jesus is used twice in verse 1. First use is at the end of the first phrase, where he calls himself and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. There he's referring to Christ Jesus as kind of a salvific experience with Christ Jesus. But then the second use of in Christ Jesus, which is to all the saints in Christ Jesus, is ecclesiastically in Christ, as verified by the words including the overseers and deacons. Is this idea of being ecclesiastically in Christ not a stretch for us? You bet it is. You bet it is. Hey, tomorrow, if you don't like this church, there's another one down the road. Probably more like five down the road. This idea of ecclesiastically being in Christ is so amorphotized in our culture, our religious culture that you've lived with. You were born into it. You were born again into it. You've lived in it. Always an option, isn't it? But this idea that being in Christ Jesus is both salvific and ecclesiastical is merged in verse 6. Join me there. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, plural, not you, singular, you, plural, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And who is the you? In verse 6, it's the you all that we saw in the previous verses, and it's all the saints mentioned in verse 1. In other words, what Paul is saying in verse 6, when he says that I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will also perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's saying, not just that you are going to be saved, not just that your salvation is is secure, but that ecclesiastically, the salvation of all those who are all the saints in Philippi will be saved collectively. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. This is nothing different than Ephesians 5.25. Christ died for the church. I mean, verse six by itself is an incredible promise, is it not? Who begins the work of God? Who begins the work of salvation in verse six? Nobody knows. It's not your mother. It's not your daddy. It's not yourself. It's not the pastor. Who begins the work of salvation in your life? God and God alone. Right? I heard somebody say it. <clears throat> and. Uh, who completes the work of salvation in your life, according to verse 6? Says here that he who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, that word perfect, epitelesi, to cause a plan to fully be executed. That's not only applicable, beloved, to each of you individually, it's applicable to you collectively. In other words, God's plan for you to be saved. And to carry you from beginning to end is not just about you individually, but it's about the people who are seated in the same pew and the one in front and the one in back. Get it? Unless you're like Debbie this morning and she's sitting with no one near her. Still applies, Debbie. There you go. George. He's protecting us this morning, isn't he? Yeah. Good. That might help. See, the great reality then of what the Apostle is saying is that we aren't merely saved individually. We're saved ecclesiastically. We belong together. We need to rub shoulders together. When we rub too hard, we need to cry, and we need to be hurt, and we need to repent, and we need to love. This is who we are. This is what the Holy Spirit forms us to. This is what Christ accomplished when he died. And, and if you read this with an apostolic heartbeat, you would say to yourself, you know what, I'm not just satisfied to have myself get to heaven. I want everyone who is with me in church to get to heaven as well. It's no longer just about me. So, interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you look at the Christian life from the place of suffering and like a place like a jail cell like Paul was in, or you've been on a sick bed, or your body is weakened, beloved, because of age, service, other things, or perhaps even God has placed you on a shelf of obscurity for several years. Things get clarified through affliction. Fires purge. Works. Personal ambitions get purified. People are found to be precious. And God himself is to be magnified because God himself is all-glorious. Certainly Paul knew that. And so therefore we understand that when Paul looks at the believers in Philippi from 800 miles away, he sees them ecclesiastically, all the saints. And lastly, Paul sees them legally, He has seen them universally, he sees them ecclesiastically, and now he sees them legally. Or we'll put it this way to start off with. You know, Paul's in jail. He's in jail, really, in order to get Christianity legalized in the Roman Empire. That's why he's in jail, that's why he's been waiting for a couple of years to get his trial to go all the way to the highest court of the land, of the empire. And he hasn't seen these Philippian Christians for such a long time, but he lets you know here that he sees every one of them as part and a crucial part, a heart part of his legal team. Join me in verse 7. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me the word imprisonment there really should be translated chains he's talking here about being in chains and he's specifically talking about the day when he's going to march forward chains around his wrist into court and then he's going to speak the word defense there refers to the speech that he will make attempting to sway the judge or judges of his case that Christianity as an offshoot of Judaism or really the natural outgrowth of Judaism should be legalized in the Roman Empire. And then the next piece of legal language that he uses there is confirmation of the gospel. And he describes to the Philippians that they are a part of his defense, and they are a part of his confirmation of the gospel. That's referring now to the hoped-for result of his speech, vindication before the court. But he tells these people here that they are in his heart, in his chains, in his defense, in his confirmation, his expected hope that he will be vindicated and Christianity will be legalized so people are no longer getting killed. What he used to do This is Paul's hope that Christians everywhere will be able to freely practice Christianity without fear or threat. Really what we enjoy in our country. They didn't have it. Frankly, he wasn't ultimately successful because Nero was mentally deranged. But understand here, when you read verse 7, and Paul is talking about his relationship with the Philippians, he's no... He's no martyr on behalf of the Philippian Christians. He's not talking about that. Instead, he speaks of something legal. He, he says, It's only right for me to feel this way about you all in my heart. Because <coughs> I have you all. Every one of you. And again, he doesn't know most of them. But I have every one of you in my heart. Now think about that. In what sense could Paul have a bunch of people he does not know in his heart? It would almost sound like he's being, oh, he's speaking like, you know, just a way to curry favor. Like he's just such a nice guy. I have you all in my heart, and I really like the color pink and Hallmark movies, and I hope you do too. He's just such a nice guy. No, that's not what's going on here. In fact, quite, something quite more profound. The way that he talks about these people, having them in his heart, is in the same way that all the saints are in Christ's heart. All the Christians are in Christ's heart. Christ legally adopted all believers even before the foundation of the world and took you all into his heart. Therefore, when he came to earth, he came to earth for you all. When he suffered he suffered for you all. When he died on the cross, he died on the cross for you all. And when he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead for you all. Collectively. This is the way the apostles almost always present it in the New Testament. Collectively. Christ died for a people. Therefore, Paul can simply look at what his own glorious Lord has done and gone through and suffered and sacrificed for these dear people. And because he loves Christ and because he's experienced the love of Christ and because he experienced the legal adoption and then he experienced the grace of God in his life when he was born again, therefore it's only right that he would have them in his heart. It's only right for him to feel this way about every single one of them, most of whom he does not know. This is the apostolic heart I was mentioning a little bit ago. Think about it. Christ didn't choose you or any of us based on any of our goodness, based on any of our likability, based on any of our perfections. Rather, Christ chose us based on a higher motive, because His Father had before the foundation of the world set His love upon us, even when as yet we had not been created, nor even the world. Hence, Christ chose to do, based on the Father's love for us, that which was most necessary for us, to die in our place, to bear in His body our sins and our sinfulness, and to make a full and complete atonement before his Father so that we could be forgiven and we could be justified and regenerated and in the resurrection experience everything that is necessary, both now in this life and then future resurrection when we die and are with Christ, not just individually but collectively. Therefore, since Christ took you and you all into his heart, by way of sacrifice and suffering, then how can Paul do any less? Or how can I or Joey or any of you allow for anything less? This is what Paul is getting after. He's in the court system. He's representing their crucial interest in order that they may be able to have church on Sunday without worry about troopers coming in or getting them at their houses. Obviously, when he says here that I have you in my heart in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he's not talking like they're really a part of his legal strategy. Not that. He was doing what he was doing for their benefit, for their good. It was independent of them in the same way that Christ's good work for you on your behalf was independent of you. But listen, this is the emotion of it. This is the heartbeat of it. I have you in my heart. Now I can die for you. Now I can suffer for you. Not based on how funny you are or whether I have pleasant conversations with you, but merely based on this. You have faith in my Lord. You love Him. You want to worship Him. You want to serve Him. So I'm not going to love you based on your perfections or lack thereof. I'm going to love you for Christ's sake because you love Christ. You profess faith in Him. Boy, it gets easy at that point, doesn't it? I don't have to weigh and measure out which Christians are worthy of my love and affection and attention and speech. All of them are. Does this sound pie in the sky? Are you saying to yourself right now, listen, the few Christians I do know I have a hard time liking, much less loving, And this is what we see. We see Christians all the time up and leaving churches because they don't love the Christ who is in that church, you see. It's not because there's bad doctrine. It's not because they're being abused. They just grow upset. They don't have this kind of heart, loving all the saints. So they're going to go find saints that they prefer somewhere else. Do you think that honors Jesus Christ? They just don't have this love in their heart. They do by the Holy Spirit, but they're working pretty hard to squelch it. If that's your spirit this morning, then I can just tell you, you would not have liked the church of Philippi very much, where Paul is going to command them to have unity one with another, especially in chapter 2, where you're supposed to prefer one another before yourself, and where you're to be so unified with each other who are in Christ that you are to think of Christ coming down from heaven and make yourself like him. This legal aspect of legally, I'm asking you to legally adopt into your heart this morning, every single Christian here. Is is carried on in verse 8. The legal language continues there. For God is my witness. That's the legal language. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What is that? the affection of Christ Jesus. It's tender mercy arising from the inner bowels. When you take a perspective of all the believers with the same perspective that your Lord has of them, you can't help but be affectionate toward them, not in the sense of sentimentality, but in the sense of sacrifice. I will bear your burdens. I will love you. I will give when you are needy. I will be friendly with you. I will love you. It can't help but happen when you view your fellow believers the way your Lord views them. It's really what, what Paul is saying. and it's doctrinally committed, or connected, actually, back to verse seven. Do you see at the end of verse seven, "You are all partakers of grace with me. That's the basis upon which we love all the saints. If I was a partaker of grace, and it was grace, and not by my deeds, and surely it was, and you are a partaker of grace, and it was not by your deeds, but it was rather by grace that God saved you, and surely it was, then how can I not, since we are co-fellow sharers of God's grace, not have this perspective of verse 8, of longing for one another with the affections of Christ Jesus? And when you think about what Christ went through on his way to the cross... And what was in his heart that allowed him to endure the sufferings, despising the shame, to pursue the full goal, and to say it was finished, was you, not just individually, but collectively. You were in his heart. You. Don't you love this man, the Apostle Paul? Isn't this just an astounding The astounding individual who, like, gets the gospel at such a wonderful and deep level and puts it here in such friendly terms for us to accept. I just love it. So he chooses to love the Philippians, though he knows them not. And he does not love them because of anything intrinsic within themselves, but simply because they have received God's grace. And for Paul, that's everything. That's everything. See, he, he reasons his way to how to love the brethren, not from getting to know them and finding out if they're cool enough for him, but rather based on the fact that Christ died and rose again for them. And they were in Christ when he died and rose erect. All right, all of that, I've given you a bunch to think about. Let's just close with a couple of thoughts. Have you ever had anybody ever come to you and tell you, uh, hey, uh, been praying for you, praying that you'll grow in love. <laughs> and uh, you're, at first, you're, you don't know whether to be like humbled or angry because, because why are they telling me? What? So you say to them, if you have a little guts, you say, well, do you, do you believe I, I need to grow in love? And then often the person having been kind of like, whoops, I've been outed, goes, oh, no, 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 you're great. I just pray that for everybody. And in which case, the prayer becomes an exhortation to become a loving person, doesn't it, no matter how the conversation goes. Well, look at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. You know, this is what Paul wants back from the Philippians. He wants them to love one another in the way that he has just described how he loves them. He says there in verse 9 that your love may grow, may abound more and more in prettiness and fancy stories. That your love may abound more with holiday seasons and church programs. Actually, he refers to the way they think about things, the way they think about love. Real knowledge and all discernment. You know what he's getting at, right? Everything we've talked about. That, you, that your love grows and abounds more and more, not based on the way the person dresses on Sunday, nor whether they're from the same ethnic group as you on Sunday or every day. Not from anything, but from simply this, their faith in Christ. For I tell you, beloved... Every one of you who has faith in Christ, I am obligated not only to love you but to die for you if need be. How can it be any less if my Lord already did that for you and I belong to him? So he prays that their love would grow more and more. Look, there was the different threats to the church. Some had already left the church, we find out in verse 3, and had started their own group. There was the threat of vicious schism in chapter 4. He wants them to grow, all of them, in love more and more. And then secondly, he wants them to grow in wisdom. Look at verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the praise of God. And again, I love the terms here being filled with the fruit of righteousness as a result of verse 10, approving the things that are excellent. This is what happens when you begin to love all the saints. You see the superlative nature of love. You get away from the human nature that we all have, which is, I really just love those who please me, to, I love you for something for a far nobler cause, the cause of Christ. Therefore, your mind is now open to be filled with wisdom. And you can approve the things that are excellent. And now you make your way to the final day in order to be sincere and blameless. So let's close it off. Are you with me, beloved believers? Will you invite the entire body of Christ into your heart to love them legally as even your Lord did? Or shall you remain in the place of, I choose who I love based on whether you please me or not? Are you with me in heart, soul, and spirit this morning to say that's how Christ did it, that's how I must do it, God give me all the grace and power necessary to do it. I refuse to live a life of carnality. Are you with me? I got one shake of the head. I'm totally impressed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, then I ask for this to be pushed into our thoughts our hearts by your Holy Spirit to be lived out to your honor and glory. How we thank you, Father, for the things that you've taught us this morning and showed us. Now we ask, Father, for the strength to do that which both your beloved Son did and then the Apostle and now us. Give me grace and give us joy in the midst of it all